from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we are going to talk with a physical scientist about a new discovery about the formation of ice and how it could impact the way we understand weather and climate. After that, we'll chat with a health scientist about why Americans aren't getting the message when it comes to the dangers of cities. The theoretical chemist and the epidemiologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Okay, pop quiz. What is the temperature at which water freezes? Did you just say 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius? It turns out you're kind of wrong about that. And not by a little, but by a lot. Let me let that hang there for a moment while I ask you another question. What is the worst thing you are doing to your body? The answer to that question, admittedly, is a little more subjective. But if you're like many Americans, you probably do this thing without thinking too much about its impact on your health, and chances are good that you're doing it more now than you were just a few years ago. Joining us in studio today is Valeria Molinero, a professor of theoretical chemistry at the University of Utah. Her team's recent study in the Journal of the American Chemistry Society explains how tiny proteins control the initial formation of ice at various temperatures that are almost never exactly 32 degrees. Valeria, welcome to Undisciplined. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Also joining us from Calgary, Alberta, where she is an epidemiologist whose work focuses on the role of energy balance in cancer prevention is Lin Yang. Her team's recent work shows that despite health warnings, Americans still spend way too much time sitting on their butts. Lin Yang, I'm glad you're here. Hi, I'm glad to be here, too. Let's start today by talking about ice. I learned something crazy this week. As it turns out, ice doesn't always freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Absolutely pure water, just H2O and nothing else, won't freeze until it reaches negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit. Because up until that point, it needs something to bind onto to freeze, like a a fleck of dust or maybe a little bacteria or a protein of some sort, an anchor for the first crystals to latch onto. This is called nucleation. Valeria Molinero, let's take a step back. How did you first start getting interested in this idea of nucleation? Oh, well, that's a long story in some sense. I was actually working on silicon and the formation of silicon crystals. And I realized that water and silicon are actually quite similar, although they don't look like. They are both four-coordinated in the crystal state, and they have a lot of similarities in their physical chemistry. And because of that, I jumped into the idea that what I have learned about the crystallization of silicon, I could use to derive the model of water that allows us to study the nucleation of water. And from there, we studied the nucleation of water first without um, any impurities. And then I became interested in understanding how does water form ice in clouds. This temperature at which water is going to form ice is critical for precipitations. So that's how I got interested in this, from silicon to bacteria. Some plants and animals actually, well, they create these proteins to manage the circumstances under which they freeze. Yes, this is amazing. Actually, maybe what is most amazing is that the proteins that are used to prevent the formation of ice and to promote the formation of ice, they have very similar chemical makeup. So they look quite similar and they have evolved independently. So insects produce proteins that allow them to bind the proteins to ice and prevent their growth. And bacteria produce 
proteins that look very similar, but they are very large, and they allow them to control the formation of ice and promote it at very warm temperatures. That means just below the freezing temperature. You and your team conducted simulations of protein interactions with water molecules. And these are the different sorts of proteins that these plants and animals use to control the freezing point of water around them and within them. And when you did this, when it comes to the proteins that promote freezing and it comes to the proteins that resist it, there was an interesting similarity. Can you talk about that? So there has been um, the understanding for a long time that organisms produce proteins that can either prevent the growth of ice or promote it. And one thing that was quite intriguing to me is that if you look at the proteins, they have similar binding sites. That means that the way the chemical groups are in the surface that bind to ice are very similar, but they have different sizes. And what we show in this study is that the size of the proteins is the one that determines whether they're going to be antifreeze or ice nucleating. If they are large, like the proteins in bacteria, and they are exposed in membranes where they can aggregate and form very large, like long real state of proteins, then this is a great place for the proteins to form ice because the ice can bind and the binding of ice there decreases the cost of the liquid to ice phase transition. And this is a good ice nucleating protein. If they are very small and in solution, that is the case for antifreeze proteins, they can just swim in the liquid phase and they find an ice crystallite and they bind to it and then they prevent the growth. So they use the same function that is binding to ice to exert on one side the suppression of the ice growth or the promotion of the ice nucleation, the birth of the new phase. So at first, this sort of sounds like a really fun, you know, like a, a lab trick. But the more I thought about this, the more I realized, like, the implications of this are really quite vast. And you talked about your history and how you got interested in nucleation as this thing that can help us understand weather and cloud formation and when rain is going to fall and when it's going to turn into snow and ice. The impacts of this could be useful for everything from weather modeling to climate studies. In principle, yes, <laughs> although it's quite difficult to uh, the weather models Actually, and climate models, they need to determine whether the water in the atmosphere is ice or liquid. This is for two different reasons. First of all, because the radiative properties, so how much energy they absorb from sunlight, is different for ice and for water, liquid water. So that means that if you want to know how much water is absorbed by Earth, you need to know whether it's liquid or ice. And the second is because of predicting precipitation. And at this time, uh, one of the big uncertainties in weather and climate models is to predict whether aerosols that are in the atmosphere are going to promote or not ice nucleation at which temperature. So I think that understanding what is the relationship between the size of the proteins and bacteria and ice nucleation in the atmosphere is very important. On the other hand, these models are super complex and actually the way they are parameterized because they are models with parameters is very coarse considering the scale of this study. So you cannot distinguish between different bacteria in this model. It's just biogenic particles, dust, uh, soot, things like this. These are the big classes. But I think that we're getting there and we're contributing from many different points to that. The understanding of how do proteins nucleate ice, I think that is important also for other areas like uh, cryopreservation. There are a lot of strategies now to prevent the formation of ice or to control the formation of ice in mammal cells for cancer therapies, for preservation of organs or for other reasons. And I think that this study also points in that direction because now we can understand what are the fundamental properties of these proteins that allow them to control the formation of ice. So 
as an avid skier, I saw a promise in another area. This was interesting to me because we can use our knowledge about nucleation to improve snowmaking. Actually, snowmaking already relies on bacteria. So the, the main product that is used to make snow, when you see a machine making snow, is typically a mixture of air, water, and bacteria. And this bacteria, Pseudomonas syringa, is the one that we study there, is the most efficient promoter of ice nucleation. And it's a bacteria that is very common in crops. Actually, it's a plant pathogen. It's very sad. And this plant pathogen uses this ability to form ice to just kill plants. But then you can harvest this bacteria and you can culture them and kill them and make small pellets. And this is what they use in this product called Snowmax. So it's just the dead bacteria and we use them to make snow when we need it. I, so I think, it's already there. <laughs> I think that a lot of skiers are going to get really freaked out now when they go buy one of those big snowmaking machines because you're not just getting blown with snow and air. You're getting blown with snow, air, and bacteria. Yes, but very few. Very few. <laughs> That's Valeria Molinero. Her team's recent study in the Journal of the American Chemistry Society explains how tiny proteins control the initial formation of ice at various temperatures. Valeria, there's someone I'd like to introduce you to. Can you stick around for just a bit? Yes, of course. Let's turn now to the subject of sitting. At this point, almost all of us have heard that sitting for prolonged periods is, well, it's pretty darn bad for us. But when they analyzed the surveys of more than 51,000 people from all over the United States between the years of 2001 and 2016, my next guest research team found that we're spending as much time on our butts as ever, and some of us are even sitting more. Lin Yang, can we start today by going back over some of those health risks? What's so bad about sitting? So I have to say that I'm sitting right now on this phone. So <laughs> there are a lot of research on sitting evidence on how bad sitting is to our health uh, start accumulated in the most most. 20 years, but actually the first, uh, very first sitting study was almost 70 years ago. And later, there were also studies have shown that sitting, particularly, I have to say, is sitting watching TV, has been linked with cardiovascular disease risk and some cancer, as well as diabetes and overall mortality. And even though there's been like 70 years of research into this, your study was the first to document sitting in a national sample and across multiple age groups. Did you spot any groups that are maybe doing better than others? The measurement of sitting has always been a difficult thing to do from a scientific point of view. So for us to be able to look at the trend on sitting time over time, it's just recently available with the data. Um, as you point out, we look at all different age groups, right? The children, adolescents, and adults. What we found was that in general, the sedentary behavior, because we look at the TV viewing, computer use, outside school and work, as well as self-reported total seating, in general, we see either stable or increased trend, except there was a decline trend in TV viewing in children. But when we look into more detail, the decline trend was only seen among the non-Hispanic white children. So we will say in general, it's all stable or increasing. And you found that, well, some groups are doing much worse. But in general, like for instance, teens from 2007 to 2016 added an 
hour on average to the amount of time they spend sitting down each day. That's just one decade and a substantially increased portion of these people's day. I know. That's when we look at the data, we're like, we were kind of expect this, but still, it's it's kind of crazy. Because I myself, I live in America between 2004 to 2008, then again in 2013 to 2016, and I look at my life, you know, into you know that was like 10 years apart. I felt like I I myself was sitting more as well. <laughs> Was it discouraging to realize that there hasn't been a tremendous change in the amount of time that people are spending sitting? This is despite the fact that there's been a lot of very public health research saying, for instance, things like, look, sitting is like the new smoking. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good point. Uh, first of all, I have to say that it sounds really scary, sitting is the new smoking. Sitting is not as bad as smoking. Smoking is way worse than sitting. <laughs> but uh, if we look at the uh, research evidence and the policy developed on smoking, there was a really strong policy support to stop smoking or reduce smoking at national and international level. Sitting on the similar note is that I don't think, in, in my opinion, it's not just individual choice because we have responsibility to the society, you have to work, and you have to, you know, many tasks now can only be done at, at a sedentary uh, posture, so you can, we cannot avoid it. So it's really creating the environment and the policy support that for us to be able to sit less and become more physically active. And I think that's where the real change starts to take off. To that end, do you make policy recommendations? I mean, I know that's not your particular field, but I'm sure you are interested in seeing change happen um, because of the really devastating consequences of sedentary behaviors. Uh, not necessarily at the policy level, but worksite support, right? And we can make the workplace more active with more activity opportunities. And when we talk about policy, and actually in America, many people spend so much time in the car. And that is a lot of sitting as well, with just with the commuting. And if we want to reduce the time spent in this particular behavior, that have to be policy comes in. That's Lin Yang. Her team's recent work in the Journal of the American Medical Association shows that despite health warnings, Americans still spend way, way, way too much time sitting on their butts. Lynn, you were listening in as I was chatting with Valeria earlier, and she was listening in to you. Are you ready for an introduction? Uh, yeah, sure. Valeria, this is epidemiologist Lynn Yang, and Lynn, this is theoretical chemist Valeria Molinero. Hi, Lynn. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you, too. I was just thinking as I was chatting with both of you, like, how much both of your work has to do with changing perceptions. Valeria, you and I were talking before the show about how I had to reorient 40 years of education when I read your study because I had already assumed water was water and water freezes at a certain temperature. And Lynn, your work has to do with changing perceptions about the relative health consequences of behavior. I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, how do you go about doing that? 
Uh, one side, I would say that the perceptions have to do with our contact with the world, and in the case of chemistry, that is different from the case of epidemiology. So in some sense, I find that the work that we have as scientists is to really dig into the natural world and understand it and put it back into experiences that people can relate to, like the formation of rain or the freezing of snow and how do we make snow in snow machines. But in some sense, is to go back from the natural to the unnatural, that is the research itself, and then back to the natural world to connect with people. It is weird, yeah. but, <laughs> but denaturalizing the natural and going back, I think that this, this deconstruction is the world of the scientist. I have to agree with that, if I may say it's a scientific way of thinking, that normally we thought we know many, many things, but if you really look into the scientific evidence or the research behind it, there's so many unknown. But still, uh, you know, before I walk into science, I thought, oh, yeah, of course, this is obvious. I know this. But actually, when I stepped into science, I was like, wow, we actually don't know. We just think that is the way how it is. That's one thing actually uh, brought me into science. I felt like, you know, I want to discover what's the unknown, which are already perceived known to the general population. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I think it in some sense is to make questions out of nothing, <laughs> if you want, because <laughs> uh, when, uh, for example, I tell people that I study how does water form ice, most people say, I mean, don't we know that already? And the questions are, right. I mean, you, we don't know because we don't put forward the question. And the role of the scientist in some sense is to bring up these questions and to unravel that there are questions still to be found so that we can really make predictions because you cannot understand something until you're sure that you can make predictions and then these predictions, you move forward and you're right. And I think that that's why it's uh, fascinating. But I don't think that there is an issue with perception, except for most misconceptions that water freezes at 32 Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> most other things are all right <laughs> and that sitting for a long time is not good for us and I'm sitting right now. The question is uh, whether we can entice the curiosity in people to learn why things work and how do things work. This is what is fascinating. You're both researchers. Are you also both teachers? And when you go about that, how do you incite curiosity in your students? I feel that when we are curious is because inside we develop this like a mismatch between what we know to be true and what we see and there is something that this mismatch is what helps so in many cases we have to just make this evident in the classroom and that's what we strive to do you cannot force people to be curious you can only try to induce I want to build on this idea of curiosity because I'm curious about what you are curious about. Valeria, you were sitting and listening in as I was chatting with Lynn. Did you have a question that you wanted to ask her about her research? Yes, I actually was quite intrigued on why watching TV or the sitting of watching TV, to which extent is worse than the sitting of doing radio interviews, for example, <laughs> or, or the sitting in which you are doing something. So it's, it has to do with the posture or with the attention or it's like the way you sit that makes it particularly worse on watching TV or there are different types of sitting that are not so bad. I just hope for that because I'm yeah, sitting a yeah. lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. Only like one of the research questions I want to answer uh, going forward is, is all sitting bad for you? I don't, I mean, I personally don't think so. And I have to say that the evidence around the health consequences with sitting is mostly focused on TV viewing 
and other types of staging, the evidence has been mixed. You know, some studies have shown consistently higher risk, and some study, you know, couldn't provide a evidence on these types of staging is bad for you. But most of the study looking at staging and health risk has control for physical activity, but maybe uh, the control was not enough to control for the residual confoundings. I think if we're sitting here and chatting, that's a really pleasant social event. So I don't think it's necessarily so bad for you. But we have to look at the, you know, this 24 hours movement as a whole picture, and we have, still have a lot of research question to ask. I do find it really interesting this idea that like even when we're answering these questions, you know, like all we're really doing is is scratching the surface as a very large system, right? It's not so easy yeah. as A equals B. And Valeria, that's what you see too, right? I mean, like there's climate models, for instance, such complex systems that it it's great for us to know what the freezing point of water is in certain conditions, but systems are so complex that it doesn't answer all the questions. It just invites more questions. Absolutely. And actually, it invites questions from people with completely different expertise, because that's what I think that is fascinating about science is that it's always a social enterprise. We are always interacting. We're trying to get ideas from other fields, and we're trying to see how we can use the pieces that we construct to make a larger, bigger picture much more predictable, manageable, and understandable. I feel that these problems are complex. The ones I treat personally are much simpler, because there is the reduction of just at the molecular scale what is going on with the protein. And this is much easier to say yes or no than in the case of a person sitting and you don't have control. But they're complex problems. And that's what makes it fascinating. Lynn, while you were listening into my conversation with Valeria, did you have a question that you wish I had asked? Or did you make a connection to your own life or your own research? I definitely made a connection to my I'm, I'm still fascinated. I'm like, what? Uh, zero degree. I mean, Celsius is not the freezing degree. I'm just still like, Maybe I didn't really understand it well that if this protein only exists in ice and plants, but not in humans, is that correct? Not in mammals? Yes, yes, that's right. So let me tell you why it doesn't freeze at zero, because that may be the most perplexing part. So when we think about the formation of ice from water, this is what is called yeah. a first-order transition. So you are making a crystal out of a liquid phase. And mm-hmm. the way it happens is that at one point, there is a small fluctuation within the liquid and produces a small crystallite. And this crystallite, if it is too small, it falls back to the liquid phase. The liquid opposes the formation because it's expensive energetically. And what the proteins do is making something like a mountain pass. So when you have a protein and this protein binds ice, what it does is it diminishes the cost of this interface that opposes the transformation. And by diminishing that, it moves the transformation forward. So proteins and also uh, minerals do the same. And there are many surfaces, although it's quite a rare thing. Only one in a million particles in the atmosphere can nucleate ice. And you ask whether humans, we produce these proteins, and we do not because we don't need them because typically we are at 37 centigrades. And that's why only organisms that have to survive under cold temperatures have evolved to produce these proteins. If you look at the temperature evolution of Earth along millions of years, the temperatures have gone up and down, up and down, and the genes uh, that give rise to these proteins appear and disappear the same way as the temperature of the Earth goes up and down. So essentially, organisms, when they need them, they just use pieces of genes from other purposes and they reuse them to make these proteins. 
I'm just thinking how that has implication right now with the global warming. And also now the winter is getting really harsh. I don't even know if my question makes sense, but if you look at all the permafrost, you know, like, does this kind of protein play a role there in the permafrost and climate change? As far as I know, the proteins are not in the permafrost because, okay. I mean, I, I'm not sure what is in the permafrost, but what I know is that there right. is a lot of methane and a lot of water um, from bacterial decomposition. So maybe some of the bacteria and uh, organisms in the permafrost also use these proteins, but I'm not aware of that being an issue in global warming. However, I think that there is an implication that I think that can, can be drawn I mean, we all expect that the temperatures in the atmosphere are going to be raising. And with this raising of temperatures, we're going to have more and more water in the atmosphere because the water is going to vaporize. And this means that there is going to be more of the water, not in rivers and in bodies of water, but maybe in the atmosphere, and that the atmosphere is warming, you will need ways to produce precipitation at warmer temperatures. The only aerosols in the atmosphere that can nucleate ice and produce precipitation at warm temperatures, I mean just very close to freezing, are the bacteria. So one of the points I think that is going to become important is that when the temperatures go up and the clouds form but they cannot precipitate, we may need to seed the clouds. It is very common to promote the formation of ice in clouds by seeding. Now people use silver iodide. And I think that the studies that we have done indicate that it could be possible to develop new synthetic or modified materials that are more effective at ice nucleation than silver iodide at a lower cost, and this could be used for seeding and precipitation. So in a warming atmosphere, I expect that part of the discussion over water rights that now all rely on discussions about water in rivers, they're going to become discussions on water in clouds, and people that can seed the clouds and make them precipitate is going to have the water. So I think that is an interesting area for policy too in the future. Unfortunately, we're running short on time. Valeria Molinero, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you so much for having me. And Lin Yang, thank you. Thank you so much. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City, Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.